Hello, hello, hello. Happy International Workers Day, aka May Day, May 1st, 2021. This is the, let's see, let's do the quick math here. This is the 135th anniversary of May Day. Uh, The first being 1886, so go ahead and check my math on that one. Uh, I think it's actually... Whatever. Math. Sure. Okay. Um, Yeah, so hello. This is In Defense of Liberation, the show that is working towards and educating about a true people's liberation and hopefully one day a true proletarian revolution. But until that comes, I am your host, Josh. And if this is your first time tuning in, I really appreciate you stopping by, especially on such a lovely day as today. Um, So yeah, for those of you who might not know, as many of us don't, you know, it's fairly new history to me as someone who studied for a year to become a history teacher. Uh, May Day, aka International Workers Day, uh, has some history and we're going to get into that in a second. But before we hop onto that, I would like to preface this conversation with two things. First and foremost, the majority of our organization and quote-unquote militancy within this country, the United States, is abysmal. And the majority of us want to go out in order to build coalitions, build collective, you know, action groups... We get that much down. And then we get to the point where we are to demand what it is that we as the workforce of this country truly want to see change in the world. And more often than not, due to many different reasons, whether that be opportunism, whether that be failed ideology, whether that just be, you know, kind of the ruling class Uh, mentality kind of taking us over as it often does Uh, or if it's you know direct assault or reaction by the ruling class and their supporters more often than not our demands and what it is we work towards is just simply not enough Um, we are at a period of time in history where not only do we have hundreds as well as thousands of years of human history to look towards in order to learn lessons from. But we also have very few years of human history left if we do not begin committing ourselves to learning these lessons and not only learning these lessons, but taking these lessons and applying them in action to the very world that we live in in order to give the very power that is holding people down, that is keeping people in inequality, in poverty, and oppression, and we got to give that to the very people while also working with the people to build that power amongst themselves in the form of, you know, what we might call dual power. And also on top of all of that, we have to be rising and, or I should say raising the consciousness of the workers and of the masses because, you know, as we've seen time and time again throughout history, uh, leave it to the the masses and they will have, you know, some form of 
for use of, for lack of a better term, anarchy, but not to mean, you know, proper anarchism, but, you know, chaos. Um, and chaos leaves a vacuum. It leaves a lack of power. It leaves a lack of planning and it leaves a lack of organization that allows for any third party to come in and take that power for themselves. So I wanted to hit off the show with saying that if you're a part of an organization or you are trying to build some kind of change in the world we live in, learn history. And not only learn history, but learn the lessons from history. And do not fall to that very same history and repeat the actions of that history. We have very little room for failure. We have to be extremely intelligent and correct in all of our organizing strategies. Second thing I wanted to start off the show with is just saying that the majority of us, especially in America, are coming from a place of almost, if not complete ignorance. Uh, Not only of May Day, but of just, you know, workers' rights, of our, you know, system, capitalism, and how that creates uh, oppression and domination by the ruling class, how that creates subjugation and second-class citizenship for the masses. We also have to learn and look at, because we are incredibly ignorant, again, history, and not the history from the history books that we have learned it. Because also in those history books, we are taught about slavery, we are taught about, say, Jim Crow, we are taught about the Civil War, and all these different, you know, this is just one very clear example in the United States of oppression, but we're taught all these very different, you know, historical events, and all these very different occurrences of oppression as just that, as events. But the issue is these events are not shown to be a part of a long-standing tradition, a progressive and evolving oppression of the very many by the very few. Meaning, as it stands right now all across the world, very few people, whether it's the wealthy or the ultra-powerful, have control over the entire world that you and I live in whether the economy, the society and how it develops, the political sphere, what jobs there are available, how we formulate our idea of the world, our philosophy, our ideology, they are completely in control. And this is, you know, quite honestly, an undeniable fact. And those of us who want to sit here and pretend like that might not be the case are just fooling ourselves. But it is important to note that that is changing. And the masses all over the world, but especially in the global south, uh, Latin America, Asia, and Africa, are beginning to mobilize, they're beginning to organize, and they're beginning to call out for an end to capitalism, an end to American imperialism, and an end to global oppression. Similarly to how we are taught history, these things are shown to us as 
sparks, as random events that just blow up and dissipate. But that is not true. And we see more now than I think, uh, you know, many of us might have had the opportunity to beforehand. But more now than ever, we are beginning to see people rise up and call for a change, call for revolutionary change, wherein we're not just hoping for someone different to be in charge. We're not just hoping for some different laws to be passed. We're not hoping that maybe we can make $15 an hour and just barely skate by over poverty wages. We're not hoping that we can have shelter. We're not hoping that we can have food. Across the world, and even here in America today, people are beginning to recognize that the only way we can guarantee that these things will become a reality, that the world will truly change for the better, is by putting the very people who they themselves are oppressed, who they themselves cannot eat, cannot find shelter, cannot find a job. They are given not only the ability to meet all those human needs, but also the power to build up the avenues, the systems, the institutions, and especially the political and social power that will allow these people to liberate themselves. We do not at any point in time want to work towards or advocate for any different form of rule of the few over the many. Whether those few are of pure heart or not does not matter. Any uh, uh, patriarchal system, any um, system that separates its rulers from its people in a relationship of, you know, caretaker and dependent, this is not what we need to work towards. So now that I've said all this, let's keep it in mind that, you know, this idea of these things not being disconnected events, these things not being uh, completely incoherent and and just explosions uh, throughout history that just dissipate and have no effect. Um, We have to recognize that these things are all in line. They are all a connection and a part of one big struggle for the emancipation of the masses, the emancipation and liberation of the working class from their their position of subjugation, of oppression, and of supposed powerlessness. So with that in mind, May 1st, 1886 was the first May Day to ever take place within the United States. May Day, however, was a part of, as we have already discussed, a international and long-standing struggle. The working class across the world at one point in time had a much more internationalist, much more dialectic understanding of their struggle, recognizing that capitalism was a global problem. You had the First International, you had also the Second International, who was actually the association that made May Day an international workers' holiday. Um, 
you had all kinds of organizations that had correspondence with and connection with workers all over the world. Um, and folks had began to recognize that the more that they were capable of learning from one another, the more that even in their own localities, they were able to come to some sort of collectivized action rather than individual attempts by individuals to see things change. They recognized that this was the process that would lead towards true systematic change. The people themselves who are oppressed, the people themselves who are overworked, coming together and demanding that this no longer be the case, and putting on the table a real threat. So for background history, uh, at this period of time, it's 1886, so in this area of time, you had folks working 14 to 16 hour days, you had people working in completely unsafe and unhealthy working conditions. You had folks working uh, Sunday through Sunday, sun up to sundown. Um, and it was truly just a system where the workers of the wage labor system were powerless in some sense. They, you know, their entire sustenance, all the food, clothes, shelter, whatever that they needed was provided as it still is today through the means of earning a wage but even amidst this you know strife and this awful you know torment like uh workplace scenarios they still were not being able to afford themselves any kind of decent living so one of the you know main things that folks began to organize around and this kind of gives us a little bit of an insight into what the consciousness was at the time and why we need to push things a little bit forward as we folks who maybe can recognize these things but they began struggling for the eight-hour workday in uh, May I think it was I think it was the same month in Chicago as well in 1884 a labor organization which came to be known as the American Federation of Labor uh, met in Chicago with a bunch of different organizers, anarchists and workers and released a proclamation that said uh, the eight hour working day shall be or the eight hours shall be the legal working day as of May 1st, 1886. That was their official statement. So this is 1884 that this proclamation is released. And now, of course, like we already talked about, this is a international struggle at this point. This is more recognized to be connected across the world than it is today. So all over the world, people began to see that this was a real struggle that could impact people's lives and could make being a worker at the very least better. Um, and, And this is, you know, the struggle that a lot of us face now of, you know, are concessions worth it? You know, is it important? Is it not important? How can we decide which is important to maintain that folks receive harm reduction, that folks are able to, you know, eat, able to have homes and be human beings? It's important in a lot of these struggles to recognize the material conditions you're living in and how even if this might not be the quote-unquote revolutionary 
uh, decision or change that might truly impact the wage labor system, it will truly impact and did truly impact the majority of workers who were at the time working. So because of this, organizers and anarchists, uh, workers and socialists all over the world began to come together and recognize and get behind this fight for the eight-hour workday. So fast forward to 1886. The proclamation said as of May 1st, this would be the legal working day. So on May 1st, Uh, 1886 in celebration of this proclamation and in celebration of what became known as May Day, workers all over the country and all over the world, uh, in some totals as high as 350,000 in the United States, began to go out, they walked out of work, they went on strike, they boycotted, they protested, they did picket lines in front of their businesses, they did demonstrations, they did all kinds of stuff to demand that this is a collective decision. We workers, we 350,000 workers will not continue to work unless you give us the eight-hour workday. That is the way that we have to take these actions. That's the way that we have to do these things. And so, you know, this was not something that, especially back then, They thought they could just go out and demonstrate and boom, they're going to get the eight-hour workday. So again, this is a sustained movement. This is a sustained international struggle that had been going on for years. So although they did demonstrate on May 1st, they also demonstrated in Chicago, uh, in places also all over the world, for more days until they got the eight-hour workday. One of those days, which is incredibly important to workers' history, is May 3rd, 1886 in Chicago. On May 3rd, a group of, I think, because I'm reading a bunch of different articles on this, a group of about 40,000 workers had come out to the McCormick Harvesting Machine Company in order to support the striking workers. Uh, There had been you know, a sustained demonstration in Chicago on each one of those days, May 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, that had remained peaceful. They had, you know, in a lot of cases been men, women, and children, you know, families coming out to support one another, local bystanders and citizens coming out to support one another. You had a lot of labor organizers, anarchists, communists, socialists coming out to support workers, and uh, on this day, May 3rd, towards the end of the day, as, you know, because as we know, as folks who might protest who or who might have seen the pictures of what it's like to protest right now in the United States, um, every time you get any kind of group together, there is always police reaction. Now, I was of the belief that since the French liberal revolutions, it was perfectly legal within the United States and actually a constitutional right to the right to organize, the right to public groupings and organizing. But, you know, according to our police force and just about everyone who supports them, so our entire government, our law structure, all the private companies who pay their salaries in a lot of ways, uh, 
yeah, so, like, all these people are just perfectly okay with every time there being a demonstration, the police showing up and usually killing someone. That's normal to us now. And it was normal back then as well. So May 3rd, you had police show up. Police repression began. They were trying to push the workers out. It was getting towards dark. They were trying to send the home, the workers home and tell them, like, all right, guys, we get it. Like, it's over. Go home. And at one point, there was an altercation between police and workers. Some, you know, event happened where they had gotten to a bickering fight. Probably the cop being a dick because cops are dicks and that's what they do. Um, and this led to two workers being shot. Um, two unarmed workers, as far as I know, being shot. One of them being killed and the other one being severely injured. Um, after this, you had all kinds of responses all across the world. But especially in Chicago, you had extreme responses because, you know, of course, that's a city it happened in. There was a lot of newspaper articles that came out, a lot of posters that began circulating around the city. A lot of labor organizations began to spread propaganda and call for people to come out in honor of the workers as some sort of like vigil, memorial type thing. But there were others who maybe weren't so, didn't have it in their mind that the goal was some kind of vigil. Um, there is some newspaper articles, some posters, some propaganda that was being spread around at the time that said things along the lines of working men's to arms, um, said things like, uh, let us seek revenge, said things like, uh, one pound of dynamite is better than a bushel of ballots, which, come on now, can we, can we really talk about how cool that kind of fucking statement is? Um, but you had a genuine response from not only the workers in Chicago, but all over the world. Again, this is an international struggle. That's something that we really, really, really do not have a mental picture for in the United States, especially today, since so much of our, um, the majority of our uh, struggles, the majority of what it is that we're working for is so centralized in America. And we keep it that way by, for many different reasons, you know, but we keep it that way by only fighting for the gains and only fighting for the betterment of people within the United States. We have to understand, honestly, that, you know, if you look at, say, the Nordic states, just because the people within your country are beginning to see better lives, are beginning to see improved, you know, uh, conditions of life, that usually means, especially since, again, capitalism, that usually means that somebody else is getting super fucked. And that was what was happening at the time to workers everywhere was, you know, capitalism was truly beginning to take off. You had capitalists who were beginning to industrialize in a way that had never been seen before, therefore leading to many new sufferings and struggles that the working class had not had to struggle against before. So you have international action. You have folks coming to the fore in order to fight alongside with 
the folks in Chicago to fight for the honoring and valorization of the workers in Chicago who got shot. And on the following day, approximately 3,000 folks showed up, including the mayor of Chicago, uh, as well as many different anarchists, workers and their families, labor organizers, same as just about had always been showing up. And uh, random little historical fact here, um, this was actually supposed to be a massive demonstration because, again, this was in response to workers being killed by the police. And they had basically at one point, according to one article I had read, circulated some hundred thousand different forms of propaganda. There was serious noise going on about this movement and about this response to this killing about uh, of these workers. I should say of this worker and injuring of another. But still. Um, but it was apparently real shitty weather. So not many people ended up showing up, only about 3,000, which not many people, that's huge for, for example, me. Um, uh, that would be in, incredible to be a part of. Um, but about 3,000 people showed up, again, including families, bystanders, the mayor of Chicago, who at one point said that he felt it was a peaceful day. It was a peaceful demonstration. He felt that there was no suggestion for immediate use of force against anyone. He felt that, you know, there was there was nothing to worry about. But again, towards the end of the day, as folks began to leave, uh, police officers and uh, also Pinkertons showed up, uh, which if you don't know who the Pinkertons are, you, you should look into them. But the Pinkertons are similar to kind of like an idea of maybe the FBI that we might have today. They were special agents who were, you know, going all over the world at the time, but mostly all over the United States in order to fight against a lot of different crimes, a lot of different quote unquote crimes, like organizing for the sake of workers' rights. Um, and so at one point, as the police were beginning to kind of push folks back, there was still, you know, active demonstrating going on. I believe that at the exact time when this did pop off, um, there was actually some anarchists giving speeches still. Um, so what happened was yet again, there was a altercation between workers and the police. The police had tried to yet again disband the workers, send them home. And at some point in time, um, and still to this day, most articles that you read about this, which I never actually named it, this is called the Haymarket Affair, Haymarket Riot, Haymarket Massacre, this event that occurred on May 4th, 1886 that we're discussing right now. Um, and basically what happened was somebody threw dynamite <laughs> into the crowd of the police. And it exploded. It killed, I think, like some police who really cares. Um, and in response to this, as police do, uh, they took their guns out of their holsters and started firing. 
They killed somewhere between, I think estimates are like six to eight to maybe 50 different people were killed. Um, Some hundred plus were severely injured. You know, that's usually what happens when police officers fire guns at folks who uh, are not firing guns at them. Although I should say, and, and this is why a lot of people are like, oh, well, like, what did, what did these workers expect to happen? You know, the workers were armed. They they had been told, you know, if y'all are coming out, come out armed. Like, shit might go off. That's why someone threw dynamite into the crowd of the police. But at the same time, it obviously is no one's goal to go out and start a firefight with the police because usually you end up in a fucking uh, body bag. So, you know... It, Folks were armed and they were ready, or or at least some were, maybe. We don't even necessarily know that kind of information. But we do know that, you know, this kind of police repression is not new. This kind of police repression is still exists today. And so in response to this, eight anarchists, including some other workers, were arrested um, against international cries for their release and clemency, um, four of them were actually sent to the gallows the following year and hung, or hanged, I guess the proper word is, um, even though, again, all over the world, there had been mass demonstrations for their freedom, um, for their release. So, This is the year 1887 we're now talking about. And in the following year, there was a massive, massive, massive response to, you know, begin making International Workers Day a consistent yearly fight for um, for the freedom of workers, for uh, the end of capitalism, demonstrations for workers to come out and begin you know, meeting one another, organizing with one another, and truly being able to build community. Something that International Workers' Day should teach us today is that among the many people who are alive and walking this planet, there are very, very few who recognize explicitly what needs to be done to change the fact that the majority of this planet is under the foot of capitalism, is oppressed, is suffering, is impoverished, is unequal to the rest of the world due to simply their economic conditions, which is usually based on uh, their social standing or creates their social standing, and then makes it almost impossible in some ways, unless, again, collective action, for people to pull themselves out of that oppression, to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, as we're always told to do. Well, first and foremost, folks, you got to have enough money to even be able to afford bootstraps to pull them up. And that's the thing is, you know, this struggle, May Day, International Workers Day, or the Haymarket Massacre, which it is in celebration of, These are things, these are events that are a part of a long-standing struggle that recognizes until the very fabric, the very foundation of the society that we live in changes. Nothing can change. So what's the foundation of that society? 
Well, a lot of us might think that the cop-out answer is capitalism, but this is true. However, similar to the progression of history, capitalism is not some unconnected or disconnected random event that uh, you know just came out of nowhere as some kind of organized strategy for rich people to become richer. Capitalism directly developed out of history, as all things do. If we look at the progression of absolutism and the rule of kings and queens in Europe throughout the 14 and 1500s, you see the development of what we now know as colonialism. Colonialism was developing alongside a brand new system called mercantilism. Mercantilism and colonialism were practices that were based on the taking of foreign goods or foreign raw materials and bringing them back in order to profit off of them. Right from the get-go, capitalism or mercantilism, as it might have been called then, which developed into capitalism, is exploitative. It takes from the poor and gives to the rich. Or it takes from the poor, gives to the less poor so that they can become rich. This obviously is not a good thing. This does not develop into anything great. And it didn't develop into anything great because colonialism is the physical foundation of our society. The military the, the political and social foundation of our society. We are, in America, a settler colonial state. We came to this land, North America, Turtle Island, and we stole it through the process of murder, through the process of pillaging, through the process of forms of lied treaties, trickery, um honestly a lot of lot of fucked up shit and you know I could do a whole episode talking about that stuff but I'm honestly not the expert uh, and and uh, I'll you know I'd love to talk about it another time but maybe not right now but that is the that's the foundation right it's the very foundation of America that <laughs> It's it's crazy because it's almost it's undeniable to say that America is a racist colonial society because the very creation of this society was through the process of coming to a separate land and stealing that land through the process of murder from the very people whose land this was. How can we combat that history? How can we sit here and pretend? That that history does not make us a racist society. So on top of that, you have throughout history, obviously, development. Different things develop, different things come to be and fall down. Mercantilism dies out. Mercantilism is not as profitable anymore. And you begin to see the development of what are called manufacturers or small factories. Small capitalism begins to take off because... Certain people are able to establish themselves better than others. They are able to concentrate and centralize their wealth. They are able to um, 
forget what the term that Lenin uses, but they are able to not only monopolize an industry, but monopolize a process. So, you know, like Lenin says, and I forget kind of how exactly the quote goes, but rather than just owning a, you know, say smelting uh, business of some sort where you turn you know, different metals into other kind of metals. I don't live in the 1900s. Leave me alone. Um, you're not only going to want to own that business. You're going to want to own the raw materials. You're going to want to own the type of uh, shipping or transportation services that get you those raw materials. You want to own all the factories. You want to own all the separate businesses that you need to get tools from. You want to own and produce those tools yourself. So as at every corner, at every single turn, it is the capitalist himself, or herself, or th themselves, I should say, who is going to make the profit. Not the workers, and not even anybody else along the line of that process, but simply the one or very few people who have come together to concentrate that, that process. Capitalism is the economic embodiment of colonialism. It is the economic development of colonialism. It is not separate from nor disconnected from capitalism. It is the economic foundation for the society that we live in today. There is no denying that. You, you just simply cannot deny that. And so that causes a development in history that is problematic. Because as we know, that capitalism developed also on top of the oppressive rule of colonialism. Colonialism had to come up with some kind of justification for its rule. Most colonialists were... Catholics, they were Protestant, they were supposedly good people. How could these upright, upstanding Christian people dominate, oppress, and, and massacre the world in this way and still call themselves not only human beings, but call themselves good people? How could they do such a thing? Well, they come up with this idea of race and they start developing some kind of reasoning, some kind of justification behind why it is they can go around and just destroy and massacre almost the entire population within this uh, na nation or land specifically, but also all over the world on just about every continent that there was, you know, life. They needed some kind of justification for their oppression because they're supposed to be these good people. So that's where we see this develop from. And that's where we see a lot of times the oppression and the second class citizenry that folks have to live through because that developed directly from colonialism where we had outright distinctions between different levels of human beings, quote unquote. We had black folks and brown folks who were not even considered human. They were considered property. They were considered like a, a, an oxen or a plow. They were not human beings. And on top of that, we also had the oppression, the massacring, and the genocide 
of the indigenous peoples on this land who were made non-human by their quote-unquote savagery that we continuously propagandized within this country. We spent more time convincing white people that Native Americans or indigenous folks, as they should be called, are savage, inhumane beasts than we ever did trying to figure out how to work on changing the relationship and changing the structure and reasoning behind why we were coming in contact with these people to maybe think that it was us who might be causing these people to act quote-unquote savage-like. Quite often, when you walk into a house with a gun pointed at the people in the house, it's very, very uh, uh, likely that they will respond violently and quote-unquote animal-like. I don't know about you, but anyone points a gun at me, I'm not going to turn into some kind of upright, civilized human being. That's all I'm saying. So, you know, this is the progression that created the world we live in today. And it's important to discuss this because it is a progression. It is an evolution. And it is a continuous one that builds on itself, cements itself, and institutionalizes itself into the very structures and systems that you and I live through work in, and experience every single day. If we do not change that process, if we do not impact that process and set it off its track, it will continue getting worse. We not only have to put this train on a different track, we have to take it off the track completely. We got to break it down into all its individual parts. We have to get rid of everything that makes it not work. And we got to give the people the power to build it up again and get it running for themselves so that the people who cannot eat or the people who cannot find homes or the people who cannot find jobs, employment, any sort of stable income to make themselves feel safe, to make themselves feel human, they must be given the power to change this world because they are the ones who need that change the most. We as revolutionaries, we as communists, anarchists, socialists, leftists, we need to help lead these people. We need to help bring up their consciousness. We have to help connect the dots and we have to help point out what is truly causing all of this. But then we need to step aside. We need to give the people the intelligence, the awareness, the consciousness, and the power to change the world for themselves. But then we have to let them change it. It is not our world to change. It is not our world to impact. It is the oppressed people's world to change. It is the oppressed people's world to take power of and control of. And to say, we have lived under the thumb of capitalism for far too long. We will have socialism. We will have communism. And we will have an end to oppression. Folks, if you are still listening to this, I appreciate you very much. Happy Workers' Day. Happy International Workers' Day, May Day. Thank you for listening to the show. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it was uh, uh, instruction-based. I hope it was educational. I hope it was historically accurate. And I hope that, you know, at the end of the day, you folks enjoyed the show. So 
If you enjoyed the show and you want to reach out to me for any reason, you can find me on all my social media, Twitter, TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, at In Defense of Liberation. You can also reach out to me on my email. That is In Defense of Liberation, no caps or spaces, at gmail.com. You can also find my organization that I am a part of, Leftist Unification Party, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, as well as uh, reach out to us in order to, you know, we're trying to get some more folks into leadership roles. We're trying to get some folks who are, you know, aware of the, they can recognize what's wrong in the world. They can recognize that we need to begin coming together in collective action to change it, but that they also recognize that we have to use all the tools at our disposal. As it stands right now, we are operating mostly online. Uh, That's leftist unification party uh, that I'm talking about. But that's okay because we're propagandizing, we're educating, we're agitating, and most importantly, we're building. And... We are at a period in this time in America, especially, where we cannot expect anything other than to build. Um, We have no community. We have no parties for the people. We have no support for the masses. We got to build that. So as a charge to you folks on this day, International Workers Day, go out, try to find some kind of demonstration that might be happening in your area. Go join. You know, you don't need to be the leader. You don't even need to hold a fucking sign if you don't want to. Go out and meet people. Go out and learn the history. Go out and speak to folks who are experiencing the same troubles and the same sufferings that you and I are experiencing. Go out and socialize. Because, God damn it, we're not going to have socialism without socializing. So, folks, if you're still listening to this, I appreciate you. I love you solidarity with you and we'll see you next time everybody stay safe stay healthy and uh happy international workers day